I just happened to preach on Jesus walking on the water from the Gospel of Matthew last year, and I hadn't come up with anything new to say, so I'm going to preach from Ephesians, our Ephesians reading. Sometimes I've said that I'm not a very spiritual person. I'm sure you've met somebody who says they're spiritual but not religious. Sometimes I think of myself as being religious but not spiritual. Of course, that's not entirely true. I have my moments. I got goosebumps during the processing in. I have my moments. Um, But I'm hoping that will change. And I was led to that interesting conclusion from the study of our Ephesians passage. First, two minor points that are certainly not Paul's major concern here. Um, We'll pick it up at verse 14. There's an interesting line. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. How is every family in heaven and earth named for the Father? Well, it doesn't make sense in English. It's a pun in Greek. Patria is the Greek word for father, and patria is the Greek word for family. And so it's a wordplay. It's a pun. Okay. Um, Think about patriotism and nation. Um, Paul's probably referring here to ethnicities when he talks about families. That would fit into the flow of the, of the passage. Certainly it could be individual families. Um, individual families have their own sort of ethnicity if you think about it. But he's probably thinking about uh, nations in the old-fashioned sense, meaning ethnicities. And second, note, Paul notes, n- p- notes that he kneels to pray. Of course, you can pray in any posture, but I just think it's kind of interesting that he he bothers to point out that he kneels to pray. When Paul kneels, he probably kneels in the Mideastern style of uh, kneeling down and then prostrating himself forward. In our Western and Eastern churches, we tend to kneel and keep our back straight and hold our hands like this. It actually comes out of the medieval feudal system when you swear loyalty to your Lord, to your, the, the aristocrat who's over you, then you would kneel down in front of them, put your hands together like that, and then the, the Lord would put his hands on the outside of yours, indicating that you're, you're, you're trapped now. You can't pull out a dagger. He's got control of your hands. Uh, you're not going to punch him. He's got control of your hands. And that's how you make your, swear your oath of fealty to your, to your Lord, to the aristocrat over you. It's called the commendation ceremony. You think I just make this stuff up? That, that ceremony was called the Amixtio Manuum in Latin. I wish Marcus were here this week to, pronounce, to help me with my Latin pronunciation. A Hangang in German. Now, not everybody is able physically to kneel. I know that. I don't know how many more years my own knees will enable me to kneel. Even if you're physically unable to kneel, it helps to take a moment to humble yourself, to think about submitting yourself to God's authority and sovereignty before you pray. Maybe you don't need to do that every time. When the car's coming at you at the road, you don't have to take a moment and humble yourself. Just pray real fast, okay? But um, it it helps, I think, to acknowledge God's God's authority and his sovereignty over me when I pray. And we can do that even in our hearts. Now on to our text, Ephesians 3. 
Paul is praying for the church, the local church that he has founded and had last visited in Ephesus about four years earlier. He's in Rome. He's in prison for his first imprisonment in Rome. And he's praying for the Ephesians. The Ephesians were facing persecution in Ephesus, largely because there's a big idol-making industry in Ephesus. It was a big center of idol-making. The city was especially um, dedicated to Artemis in Greek or Diana in Roman or Latin. Um, and, And so there was a riot in the streets. You might remember the last time that Paul had visited the church because the idol makers in town didn't want this new religion preaching against idols. Yet Paul says nothing here in his prayer for them of their external circumstances. He does not pray for protection, pray for healing, for employment, for delivery from obstacles, but he prays for their inner being and for their heart. Now, of course, elsewhere, Paul prays for healing for people and for protection. I'm not at all suggesting we shouldn't pray for external circumstances, but Paul doesn't do so here. And I find that interesting. Take some time and think about this. Paul talks about the heart, about the inner being. He talks of Christ dwelling in our hearts. Now, of course, he's not speaking of the cardiac muscle, the physical heart. But we may not so quickly figure out what scripture means when it talks about the heart. Because in modern American society, we think of the heart as the place where our emotions are. Personally, I blame Valentine's Day. We think of the heart as the place, a metaphorical place, of course, where our emotions are. It symbolizes our emotions. But to the biblical mind, the heart is all the parts of our inner being. Our inner being certainly includes our emotions, also our mind, our intellect, and also our will and our desires. And philosophers have always argued about how these three things, emotions and minds and wills, interact with each other and are related to each other. We don't need to go into all of that. A Marxist, for example, would deny we have any of those things. Instead of a mind, we have electrical discharges in the brain. Instead of emotions, we have hormonal chemical reactions. Instead of a will, we want what we've been conditioned by our material circumstances to desire. But the biblical model is very different. It affirms that we have a mind, emotions, and a will. And the Bible calls all these things our heart. Our heart is what is inside us, away from our outside circumstances, from our external world. Only one example will, I think, clarify this. You might remember the story of, it comes from 1 Samuel 15, when the prophet Samuel goes to Jesse's house and he's told to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. And Jesse troops out his sons, And Samuel looks at him, and they're all young and good-looking and strong, and he he goes one by one, and the Holy Spirit says, no, not that one. And Samuel's confused and says, well, uh, God told me, are these all your sons? And Jesse laughs and says, oh, David's out in the field. And so they call the run to the litter, right? And David comes over, and the Holy Spirit says, that's the one. And everybody says, what, David? Why would God pick David? Do you remember what Samuel says? Samuel says, man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. The outward appearance is the outside. The inward part is the heart. The outward appearance, the external circumstances are different from the heart. And Paul doesn't pray for these Ephesians' outward situation 
but for their hearts. And I think this is significant. And again, of course, we want to pray for people's external circumstances. Of course we do. But ultimately, it's the inner being, the heart, which is most important. We might remember that when we're praying through the prayer chain or when we're praying together individually or for pastoral needs, to to also remember to pray for people's hearts. Of course, the physical comes to our mind, right? Someone is ill, but also to say, and Lord, use this to change them, to make them more like Christ. Use this to pray for their heart as well as their circumstances. And this is one of the teachings of Christianity, that your heart, your inner being is most important. Because, well, let's take two circumstances. In one, your outside world is falling apart. Your job, friends, marriage, neighborhood, health, everything's a mess. But your inner being is at peace. And if Christ dwells in your heart, your inner being, you'll be okay. It might not be fun, but you'll be okay. You'll make it. It'll be tough, but you'll come through. Or what if you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, and everything is going great in your life? Your job is taking off. You live in a great neighborhood. Your marriage is fantastic, except for your heart. Except for your inner being. When your emotions and thoughts and desires are all torn to shreds, your life is a mess. Regardless of how good things look. And Paul speaks here of an inner power, a power in the heart. Verse 14 again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Isn't that interesting? Follow that through slowly. Strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays that we would be strong enough in our hearts that Christ can dwell in it. And it's the gift of God that gives that power. Wow, what to make of that? And our first thoughts here might be that the conflict or the tension between Christ and his dwelling in our hearts might be our sins. That's the first thing that might come to mind. Why would Christ want to live in our hearts, our inner beings, when when they're full of sin? Surely we need power to build up our inner selves, our inner beings, so that Christ can can dwell in it. That power is a gift from God. Paul says so. So surely we, we must cleanse our hearts of sin so that Christ can dwell in it. Well, hmm. Surely our sins are a problem. Don't get me wrong. Our greed and our lust and our gluttony and our pride and our sloth and our anger and all that must go. But the Bible doesn't say that our sins are our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is our hearts themselves. The biggest problem is the heart. The heart of the matter is that our hearts are the matter. Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Those bad things we do are evidence. They're symptoms of the source problem. The source problem is that our inner beings are disordered and fallen and broken. Our hearts are disordered, fallen, and broken. 
Paul is telling us it requires a great deal of power, of energy, for Christ to dwell in these broken, fallen, disordered hearts of ours. And if you are a believer here today, then that massive amount of power has already been used in your hearts for Christ to live there. We're tempted to think, especially for those of us who are brought up in the church, that it's quite natural that we're Christians. That is just what we kind of fell into being. But it's not natural at all. It's supernatural. Even if you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember, your heart was once filthy and disgusting to God, but the Spirit then used his almighty power in your heart, in your inner being, and made it a place fit for God to dwell. This should be an encouragement to those of us that feel that we aren't good enough, not strong enough to remain a Christian, to keep going with Christ. Because you never were strong enough or good enough. That's the whole point. It was never you. God worked powerfully in your heart to make it a place that Christ, who is perfect and holy and God, could dwell. It was always the case that God, out of his glorious riches, the riches of his glory, Paul says, gave you the strength, and therefore you can trust that he will keep giving you that strength. Because as we all know, we aren't yet the finished product. He will keep you. And Paul is writing to and praying for believers. He's praying for the Holy Spirit to send power that Christ may dwell in their hearts. How important must it be for us to pray for unbelievers, for non-believers, that the Holy Spirit will send power so that Christ can dwell in their hearts? That's the first power mentioned in the passage. There's a second power. That you, being rooted and ground in love, may have strength power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge he gives us the power the strength to know of God's love where do we falter in our knowledge of God's love, where do we not see the breadth and length and height and depth? Perhaps when we think of our own most deepest disgusting sin and to realize that God's love extends there. Or in the middle of our own deepest most searing pain to experience God's love that broadly, that long, that deep, that high. Or when we think of those least worthy of his love we see a news story that just disgusts us and we say, I'd never do something like that. And well, yeah, you, maybe you wouldn't. But I'll tell you, you do have the capacity to do some terrible things and to realize that God's love can extend even to the most horrible of people, the least worthy of his love, that the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love can go there as well. Paul goes on, the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within it, within us. He's talking about power again, that that power didn't just create the ability for Christ to dwell in the heart, but it remains with us and that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That should be an encouragement to us. 
I'd like to close in prayer by praying this prayer, just changing the words and the pronouns. Almighty Father, we pray that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your Holy Spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within him, within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.